Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Market Show. It is Thursday, the 23rd of November, as we record. It is, of course, the day after the autumn statement, so we'll be picking the bones out of Jeremy Hunt's 110 growth announcements later on in the show, or more accurately, one or two bits that stood out to us. Today is also Thanksgiving in the US, and as it happens, this week's issue is our annual US special. We have again highlighted and analyzed the merits of four quality shares listed across the pond. We'll be discussing one of them, products manufacturer Fasenal, shortly. And our result of the week is defense equipment manufacturer Avon Protection. It's been three years of tough times for the shares now. We'll ask if there has been much sign of a turnaround in the full year figures which are out this week. Joining me to discuss all this are over the line, Julian Hoffman. Hello, Dan. Hi, Julian. And in the studio, Mark Robinson. Hi, Dan. Mike Fahey. Hello. And Tamani Taylor. Hello. And Alex Newman will be popping in to join us later on as well. We are going to start with Avon, though. Start with you, Mike. You covered the figures earlier this week, as I mentioned. How did they look? Yeah, so not great, but uh, could have been worse, I think, given the situation the company has found itself in over the last couple of years. Uh, its revenue was down single figures. Adjusted operating profit was down Single figures as well, 9% to $21.2 million. It reports in dollars. But the that was based on quite a lot of adjustments, um, the biggest of which was uh, another big write-down. It wrote uh, about $25 million off the carrying value off its head protection business. I suppose I should provide some context as well. The, the company, as we were just saying off-air, began life many decades ago as, a, as part of a cloth mill. It went through, you know, there used to be Avon rubber till recently did tires. Uh, nowadays, as I say, it focuses on defense equipment. That's both military and civil defense. I suppose what precipitated the start of the, the fall three years ago, because prior to that, it had really been on a very strong run share price wise, was the body armor episode, shall we say, where they, you know, failed a, a crucial test. Uh, and that business is now in wind down. Mm -hmm. They've also now, though, got an activist, you know, given the, what's happened to the shares in the business in, in the past uh, few years, they've got an activist agitating for change. Well, can you say a bit more about that activist, what they want and, and yeah, what, kind of, what kind of impact it's having? Yeah, I'll take a slight step back uh, just to describe some of that journey because, uh, I mean, even two and a half years ago, its shares were still kind of ramping up quite significantly. And it's because, mm. as you said, it was a rubber business. It was into different business lines uh, and they sold one of the businesses dairy off. Dairy teeth. Yes. I was going to say, they, they also <laughs> ran, they had the dairy business. Yeah. yeah. Which, which was quite successful. Yeah, very successful. I think they sold it off for about 200 million. Yeah. Um, and on the back of that went on an acquisition spree to become this much more focused civil and defence company and the issues it's facing now lie with some of those acquisitions really. They bought a business from 3M a couple of years ago, spent $91 million on that and that had two main parts. Well, it was, it's ballistics protection so it had two main parts. One was this body armour business that you mentioned that has now been wound down. Uh, and the other side was the head protection business, which still forms about, uh, well, one of the two business units they've got now. But as you said, the failure of that body armour business, putting that into wind down, really sparked a massive sell-off. I think they 
fell something like 70% on one day when that first happened. And even now, they are down over a three-year period of about 80%, which, as you said, sparked some interest from an activist investor. The activist, Ancora, uh, bought in about a year ago, and they said for the first six months or so, they were in quiet engagement with management about improvements, etc., but weren't happy with the way that was progressing and went public with their dissatisfaction in June. They are calling for uh, a much, well, they're calling for the business basically to be sold. They were asking for a strategic review. They were saying that Avon, as it stands on its own, is too small and inconsequential to serve the needs of kind of big military customers and to and to make the type of investments that are needed. And they also say that it's its value, it's much more lowly rated than peers and that uh, it would be of much greater value or more value would be realised if it became part of a bigger group. Yeah, I should uh, uh, clarify my timelines as well because, as you point out, that the, the shares have been on the decline for three years, but it was two years ago, the, the body armor test, uh, which really saw them take another big leg down. One thing I wanted to pick up on, something you mentioned at the start, was the adjustments in the latest figures. And given the acquisitions they've made, and, and sometimes they haven't always gone brilliantly, there have been a lot of adjustments to yeah. the figures in recent years. Is that when people look at a company like this and think, well, you know, shares have fallen a long way, there's activist pressure, they're trying to turn around the business. Is there still the risk, though, of those, you know, adjustments, impairments coming through in the years ahead? Um, the, the truth in that, <laughs> we'll, we'll, I suppose we'll see mm. that in the years ahead. What I will say is that um, I had a chat to management, which was quite useful on this one. Last year's results were restated, and there were some big restatements, partly as a result of the body armour business winding down. But they also said that they are trying to or they formally split the business into two strategic lines, as they call them, one being the head protection business, the other one being the respiratory equipment. And the reason they did that is they said that they didn't really have proper oversight over the business. They didn't have much visibility over the P&L. It was just all lumped in at a group level. And they wanted to put in individual management teams for both and run them both as separate businesses. And when doing that, they had to then apportion goodwill to both and the carrying value in the head protection business from some of the deals they've done again principally this deal with 3m once they split it the the revenue that the head protection business which is currently loss making just can't support the level of goodwill it had and i did ask about that and they said part of the reason for that is the goodwill apportion so it still included a big chunk of the body armor business of i think something like two-thirds um they attributed to the body armor business, which they don't have anymore. So obviously they had to take the right down. So it does seem like they are trying to, the, the new management who've been in place, I think the CEO's only started earlier this year, the CFO middle of last year. It does seem that they are trying to like clean up some of these legacy issues. They also talked about, um, it's a minor point really, but changes to the way they capitalize R&D, saying that they are expensing more and that previously everything seemed to be capitalised, even when there wasn't really a clear revenue mm. hook to attach it to. I remember some people yeah, calling attention to that a few years ago. Mm. So, yeah, that is a, a... So it is an issue they are trying to address. Yeah. Mark, uh, 
Inventory turnover is another uh, thing because one line in these results mentioned the high receivables balance, which was driven by, quote, a large number of orders shipped in the final month of the period, which does sort of sound like them throwing a load of stuff out the door right at the end. But what's your kind of take on, on inventory? Yeah, the order book was up by about uh, 11% at uh, uh, the year end, and there was a, a spike in receivables as a result of a, a lot of orders coming in towards the end of the period. But of greater importance, I think, I, I tried to look for the uh, the book-to-bill ratio everywhere, but couldn't find it. But I did note that uh, inventory turn uh, had been falling while inventory days had been increasing as well, which is which are not uh, positive signs for the uh, the company. If I, if I could just go back to... Um, the point that um, Mike was making there, I, th- I think the um, the activist investor has probably uh, got uh, a point in relation to the, uh, the effects of scale on a business uh, such as Avon as well. But you know, all all businesses engaged in M and A are open to uh, impairments on that um, basis, right? But you, if you have a look at uh, their balance sheet, eighty seven percent of it is in intangible assets, which leads to vulnerabilities in that regard. And it's it's pretty much the same for someone like BAE, but just given the scale of the business, they get write-offs. And and as a proportion of the business as a whole, they're not that significant. But in terms of uh, Avon protection, uh, it's a different matter altogether. And it comes down to when the product offering becomes um, too concentrated or or represents um, a disproportionate percentage of the the size of the business as a whole. The, The body armor business that it picked up in 2019, I think it was, at that stage, it accounted for more than half of annual revenue. So that's where the vulnerability comes in. It is it is a question of scale. And uh, perhaps the uh, the activist investor has got a point in this regard. I mean, it's, gonna, it, it's in danger of becoming a sort of Harvard Business School case study, isn't it? <laughs> I think <laughs> if you, if you, uh, you, are, you go from one extreme to the other, so it was a very diversified business made up of hodgepots of, you know, dairy teats and tires. And uh, then suddenly they concentrate really quite heavily on a very specific area of ballistics that a ballistic protection that relies on the notoriously unreliable whim of the US Department of Defense. It's a it's an incredibly huge turnaround to make from that point of view. And, and, and you know, a case study in 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 the dangers of uh, of over concentration and also the further irony of course is that they get out of all of those business just as, as at the point that they start growing again so i was you know one of my hobbies obviously is looking at the global tire supply chain of course same for all of us i think yeah i think i mean who doesn't um and the, the actually that business is is forecast to grow quite significantly over the next two to three years something like four percent a year which um you know in those terms isn't is pretty good, uh, and and they've they've got out of that um, just as you know it becomes very expensive to make tires in China and even more uncertain to get them shipped from to other countries uh, you know with trade barriers going up. So it seems to me like the, the timing is it, you know, they, they've done all sorts of decisions where the timing is wrong and the concentration on the end market is wrong as well. So you know you once they start to stack up, it's very hard to turn the business around. I think. I mean, you could, you could argue, for instance, that. Um... Uh, the civil defence part of the business uh, provides a degree of insulation because, um, you know, we, we could should see continued growth there and it provides a, uh, a bulwark against the vagaries of national defence budgets because the items that tend to be cut with national defence budgets are sort of big ticker items. The kit that's provided by Avon tends to be uh, essential 
particularly in re relation to uh, uh, civil defence. So uh, it's a plus point for the business, but then again, it, it just comes down to uh, over-concentration and scale. And the flip side, sorry, of that, uh, in terms of the scale, management would argue is that they, they are quite agile when compared to some of the competitors. I mean, one of the new orders they won, they turned around incredibly quickly and they were... I think they only won the order earlier in the in the early part of the year, and they're already producing in the helmet side two thousand or so a month. By the time the end of the financial year comes around, and he, uh, sorry, he being Josh Slater, the CEO, was trying to make a virtue of this, the fact that you've got this small company in Avon, which is on the other side of the business, on the spiritual equipment, is one of the main suppliers to as he said, the third biggest military in the world and the first two being Russia and China where they can't really serve. The, the, the only thing they might be able to serve those orders very quickly, but you just have a look at um, what they're doing with their in inventories as well. Mm. You suspect given that what's happening with the contraction, the contraction there is that they, they've got too much on their books. Uh, I don't know the nature of the business or the production nature of the business, so perhaps they have to, but... Uh, on, and on the inventory side as well, again, I seem to be doing a lot of apologising for management here. I'm not, I'm just ref reflecting what they uh, told me because the the cash picture was really bad. It, the cash conversion rate of 7%. Um, so clearly I asked about that and they did mention uh, a large order, a large one-off order from a Middle East customer which they fulfilled right at the end of the year and they said the cash would come in at the start of this year. They said they've got a bulk of that already and expect the remainder of that to come in this month. So we shall see in the next set of results whether that picture improves. Well, we're being fair to them, I should say, as well. I think the, the tyre business they did get rid of some time ago, so they may have been on the wrong right. side of the, the timing then at, at the time as well, but that was a little bit in the in the past. Let's conclude the um, section, though, with my regular question about valuation. Uh, we've got them on hold currently. The valuation... Yeah. Perhaps surprisingly, given all we've spoken about now, it's still relatively rich. Yeah, uh, but then I think that's related to earnings, isn't it? Mm. If if mm. you've got earnings weakness and you're valuing it on a price of earnings basis, then well, true. then the PE multiple is going to look quite high, and it is high. I think we had 19 at the commentary. It's come down a little bit since, but it's still around 17. You compare that to some of its peers, especially people involved in the, the kind of making of a kit side and the defence side. Like BAE Systems is it's a much bigger business, clearly much better quality, as I would argue as well. And that's trading at 15 and a half. You've got Kemring in the munitions business, which is where a bulk of the immediate order flow comes in from Ukraine, etc. That's on 15 times, cohorts on 13 times. So to me, it, it does look a bit expensive, not only on a PE basis, but... Uh, on a couple of other metrics as well. Let's turn to the autumn statement. Yesterday, uh, speaking as we record on Thursday, was uh, Jeremy Hunt's big day. Uh, Hermione, our economics writer, is here to discuss the whole thing. Let, let's start with uh, the big tax change for business, or really an extension of uh, what was introduced a few months ago, really. Full expensing. Now, uh, Hunt was making quite a lot of this, and, and it could be fairly significant, the making permanent of what is effectively capital expenditure by companies, relief on that. 
Yeah, I mean, the OBR thinks that it's going to have quite a big impact. So um, they put the cost at nine billion a year, which is why it's being dubbed the biggest business tax cut in modern British history. But it should have quite a big impact on the economy as well. So the OBR thinks that shifting it from temporary to permanent is going to increase total business investment by 14 billion pounds over the five year forecast period. So about three billion pounds a year. Yeah, I think when, when this first came in as a, as a three-year thing, or initially even even shorter perhaps, the thinking was, well, obviously businesses are just going to bring forward that investment, and then after that you get a drop-off, whereas making it permanent should hopefully, A, smooth it out, and B, make it a, at a structurally higher level. These reliefs are, are for machinery and various aspects like that. It's not all capital expenditure, so uh, it's not a total free-for-all, but certainly trying to get that that level of uh, business investment up is is important. Let, let's talk about some of the other structural measures announced supply side, if you will. A couple of the other things spoken about were speeding up grid connections, which we've talked about before on the show, and also some planning changes. Yes, yeah, so this was all, all part of a broader package, which they kind of pitched as reducing barriers to investment in critical infrastructure. One part of this is trying to improve electricity grid connection times. And the government's really keen to address the long wait time to connect to the grid because it thinks that it's frustrating investment in low carbon power generation. They also announced some reforms to speed up the planning system. So Hunt says that he's going to let councils recover planning application costs in exchange for um, approvals given in a time frame. And if they fail, companies are going to be refunded automatically. And he's also hoping to introduce a new permitted development right that's going to let developers split homes into two flats without planning permission. And the government hopes that when you kind of um, lump these measures together with the full expensing, these plans to target the supply side of the economy will increase business investment by 20 billion a year in a decade's time. They are, I, I think, well, from my point of view, you know, sensible moves, albeit the planning reforms do strike me as the, the type of reform which we've seen in the past, similar kind of things which don't really survive contact with reality, as I, as I put in the editorial this week. So we'll see how that pans out. Uh, yeah. Let's move to the, the personal tax side of things, because the other big headline was the cut to the main national insurance rate. But then is this really a tax cut is the question in the short term, maybe yes, in the long term, perhaps no. That's a very good question. I mean, this was the big reveal, uh, the two P cuts, the national insurance rate. It's also very expensive. So it's going to cost £10 billion a year by 2027. Um, cynically, it is coming in on the 6th of January. So I think the government's probably hoping that people will start to notice a change in their pay packets with plenty of time to go before the election. But economists think that it's not actually going to do that much to help households overall. So the Resolution Foundation has pointed out that the tax cuts he announced actually represent less than a quarter of the tax rises that have already happened thanks to fiscal drag kind of moving people into higher tax brackets and meaning that they pay more tax there. Um, and it looks like the impact of this on the economy will be quite small as well. So it should increase employment a bit. But um, economists at Pantheon Macroeconomics think that people are actually going to save the extra money because the economic outlook is looking quite gloomy. Um, so it will have what we call a very low multiplier and it will actually not make much of a, dis a difference to GDP. Yeah, this fiscal drag, as you say, is the, uh, the effect of the frozen income tax thresholds which, as inflation increases, salaries and wage rises go through, capture more and more people, more and more people pay higher rates of tax. And, and the OBR did update its uh, inflation forecasts in the figures yesterday, which really emphasised, I think, just how many people or how much more revenue is going to be made by the government from these, these frozen thresholds. 
Yeah, the impact of higher inflation dragging people into these higher thresholds is making a really big difference to government finances. Um, and as a result, it looks like the government's got what we call a bit, a bit more headroom. Uh, they also have a headroom because the OBR, again, thinks due to inflation that uh, in real terms, 19 billion will be cut from departmental spending in the years ahead, which I think as various people have pointed out this morning, is a, a kind of a problem for the next government, whether that is the current government or a different party uh, to deal with. And does also suggest that, you know, the, the, the plausibility of that cut going through seems, seems relatively low to me. So it seems like some of that money's been brought forward, but they'll just have to find it again in future, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a, a figure going around this morning that um, borrowing has actually turned out higher than initially forecast for every single one of the past 20 years. So when the government says that it's got all these plans for consolidation, it's difficult to know whether they actually materialise. And when we talk about headroom as well, that's quite a, a slippery concept. So it's basically the, the, uh, the gap between where the government wants the public finances to be and where they are. And it can really change depending on um, what, what forecasts are saying. So at the moment, it looks as though the government is meeting its fiscal rules and has got a margin of about 13 billion. And the government was very pleased that this was double the headroom it looked like it had in the spring budget. But these, this headroom can sort of expand and contract depending on how the forecasts for the economy are looking. Mm. We should also talk about the uh, some of the things that weren't in the statement because there had been a lot of speculation about inheritance tax, about ISAs, there were a few tinkerings around the edges with ISAs, nothing on IHT. Maybe that's maybe some of these things are being saved for either the budget or even, dare I say, the, the manifesto pre-election. Yes, I mean, I'm already speculating about what could be coming in the spring budget. Um, I think that if, if we take a look at how much money the government's actually got to play with, we could maybe kind of try and think about what they might pull out the hat. Um, so the OBR says that even though the Chancellor's got this £13 billion headroom, that's actually quite low by historical standards. So they've, they've said that it's considerably lower than the average that Chancellors have had against their fiscal rules since 2010, which is nearly 30 billion so they've actually got a lot less than most chancellors have um, but at the same time they are going to be under big pressure to cut taxes so even though these autumn statement giveaways reduce the tax burden by 0.7% of GDP it's still expected to reach a post-war high by 2028 so we are in a very high tax economy um, because of this I think they'll probably try and you know pull something out the bag for the spring budget I reckon inheritance tax speculation will probably start rising again. Yeah, there has been talk of a cut or even uh, abolition, although that would probably be, be staggered. Well, and, you know, there's been no, no word on it yet, so let's not get ahead of ourselves, start debating the ins and outs of that. ISAs as well would feed into the talk by the government that they will try and do more to encourage, you know, the, uh, the renaissance of the UK market. There has been talk with, the, with ISAs of this UK companies allocation, which, again, we won't get into now because it is firmly in the realm of speculation for the moment, but but also in terms of simplifying uh, the different ISAs and making it easier to, to move between them. So maybe that's something on which there will be more to come. Julian, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the uh, the autumn statement yesterday, the stance, whether whether on specific policies or overall. One of the interesting ones that came across was the, the pension reform that they were talking about, uh, which is mm. to merge the company's pensions into one pot. And I uh, actually got a couple of emails from readers today asking... Uh, what impact that might have on specific companies. So the one that everyone was talking about is Pension B. Uh, that company is a specialist in uh, consolidating people's 
often disparate pensions into one uh, easy to manage pot. And uh, the shares have been on a real tailor, something up like something like 68% or something over the last 12 months. And uh, the question really is whether if the government forces everybody to use one type of pension pot, whether that will affect the market uh, for that sort of service in any kind of way. But the, the kind of the expert consensus, uh, you know, the couple of people I spoke to this morning is that um, the, the, that reform is so complicated in the terms of people's occupational pensions that it's very unlikely that we'll see it get off the ground before the current government is buried under an initial inevitable landslide at the uh, the next election. And and until the Labour Party decides what its uh, pension policy is, it's it's unlikely to be um, legislated for in in you know kind of emergency legislation session. So um, yeah, so that was that was the one thing that uh, from from a company pensions point of view stood out to me and it you know uh it, it is an inevitable reform of, you could argue in the, in the long term but it's just whether anyone will ever get around to it i think that's the main, that's the main question mm. yeah this is the the small pots plan which uh as you allude to is attempting to reduce the the situation you you get a, a lot of the times nowadays where people get to the end of their working life and well certainly will be happening more and more often people get you know, several decades or several years into their career even, and they have innumerable pots from all the companies they've worked at, and they can't remember half of them. They certainly can't remember how to access half as well. Pension B does consolidate those pots and make it easier. The new plan would effectively allow people to take their own pot with them when they move jobs and ask their employer to. to yeah, I mean, uh, you can imagine the, the the administrative hassle of that. So I think that's mm. the main thing that comes across. I mean, it's almost easier to leave them in separate piles and then uh, then have someone consolidate it. But um, until somebody outlines an actual plan, I mean, it's very difficult to say what the government's going to do about it. I mean, it just seems to yeah. be a kind of slightly vague aspiration at the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, our, our argument would be in that scenario that uh, if there is a, a single administrator model that comes along, then someone like Pension B is in a better position to to look after it than than trying to con to construct a whole new system from scratch. But yes, yeah. we we don't know the detail because they don't have any detail, basically. I thought there was a, a similar scheme in operation in Australia under the national superannuation. Uh, yeah, it is kind of taking inspiration from Australia. Yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, as Julian says, as of yet, I mean, Pension B shares haven't moved much. There hasn't been any, because, uh, you know, the other side of this would be in theory that those running the big default funds might see a little bit of outflow if people start to move their pots elsewhere into, you know, wherever they want really and take it with them. But but that's so far off that there's no real impact from that right now. But uh, but we will we have Australia to thank for that alongside neighbours. Well, indeed, another uh, another key cultural contribution. <laughs> Well, we will be keeping a close eye on all these policies and how they impact companies and markets in the months ahead, of course. We are going to turn now, though, to our cover feature this week, which, as mentioned, is our annual US special. Uh, a specific company will be discussed in just a moment. But before that, Alex Newman, our stock screen guru, is here to discuss effectively how we thin the ranks of the uh, the many, many companies in the US and how we choose the kind of company we look at in this feature. And, and the feature is very much focused on quality shares, and, and that's what the screen looks for. How does it do that, Alex? So uh, quality is a bit of an ephemeral beast, mm. um, and it's, it's a little hard to define. But based on our high return on equity 
screen that we've we've used for more than a decade now focused on the UK market we sort of adapted some of the metrics and principles and thinking behind that screen to the to the US market so when we talk about quality there are a few things that um that investors tend to hone in on one is consistency so um cyclical companies which have a harder time of forecasting their profits and maintaining you know consistent earnings growth year in year out um tend to slip away on this measure quality companies are able not only to generate lots of cash and high returns on equity but they're able to turn that into growth so it's a it, it, we're sort of looking at companies where there's a bit of a virtuous um circle going on so as well as consistency you know you're looking for high margins that tends to be indicative of a company in an industry where they have a sort of economic moat or they're able to preserve a competitive advantage against others in their sector and then there there are other tests that we we put in there things like you know high interest cover so they're easily able to manage uh, any leverage they have in the balance sheet um positive free cash flow i mean free cash flow it isn't a determinant of a of a high quality business you can have high quality businesses which are investing tons of money which mean they are uh, in a free cash negative position but it tends to flow from there that free cash flow is is a, is a good indicator of the sort of business um year in year out which can uh, uh can grow and compound so um that's the that's the broad methodology behind our screen unlike some of our the, the screens we include in the magazine we're a l- little bit more selective here because we're, we're, we're sort of picking out four companies a, a year as we have done for the last couple of years so it's not the full roster of u.s quality names which um which jump out um from the screen it's kind of a filleted version of that but um i mean i, I think you know the, the track record of the lo- last couple of years still means we can probably stand by the the method um, in teasing out, you know, some some pretty good compounders. Indeed. And one of those this year is Fastenal, Mike, which is a factory floor product supplier, if you will. It started with fasteners, has moved on from there. And and part of the reason we chose that, I suppose, in a way, is because it, it does have uh, a lot of qualities, but it, it is an industrial company, so there is a cyclical element to it, and yet it has shown it can, you know, maintain a very strong track record of compounding and, and all these good metrics. Uh, so what are some of those sort of qualities it has in a bit more detail? So I think um, the thing Alex said there about the choosing companies with a moat is quite interesting in the case of Fastenal because mm. you think about it, it's uh, it's a business that started in the 60s from one small store selling nuts, bolts, screws, etc. And, you know, its closest comparative in the UK, I would say, would be something like RS Group. It, it's very much... a industrial supplies and you would think it's not something where building a moat is going to be very easy you largely playing off price pressures but it has done definitely uh, and i think one of the ways it's done that is adding in more types of service elements and trying to become more of a, a logistics manager rather than just simply selling bits of whatever it is gloves or the general ephemera that uh, industrial companies need. I mean, from the company's point of view, they they make some claims about the the amount of time that um, some of its larger customers save when it puts stores in site. It has software where it allows, say, a, a, in a specific factory, it allows people to quickly find where the equipment is. It allows... 
Uh, it has these types of vending machines that allows, only allow access for certain people to certain products, so you can control costs that way. It also uh, allows them, because people always know where everything is, it means that you maybe lower your overall inventory holdings I was going to I was going to talk about the 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 moat which uh, such companies can have but you, you've uh, you've talked about some of that there are some other points <laughs> I will come to in a minute but before that I wanted to just get into the latest figures because this is a company which yeah. uh, partly because it reports quite early on in the season each time I think it is seen as a bit of a bellwether for US manufacturing in general yeah. so again notwithstanding yeah. uh, the qualities it has that enable it to compound over time how are the latest figures and maybe what do they say about the the health yeah, of the business? Um, so yeah, um, as you mentioned, it's there is an element of cyclicality here. It's done really well over the last five years. They were showing a compound annual rate of over ten percent sales growth and operating profit growth. And part of that is obviously um, pandemic related. In the early stages of the pandemic, there was all of this safety equipment that people needed. Then in the later stages, you had this supply chain crunch and people couldn't get get hold of enough products. And the company made a virtue of its, it's got a very low borrowings. It's uh, the CEO called the balance sheet pristine and said that they were really able to kind of ramp up quickly and to make sure they had, for them, uh, not having stock is a real, it's, it's a business killer. So they had this massive inventory build, but they were still making good profits on it. Operating profit margin typically is, a, it's a 20% or above. It's, it is a real quality business like that, but... It's in a cyclical market, and you can see the first nine months of this year, sales and profits have been slowing slightly. Um, I think over the nine-month period, its sales are up six percent, but in the last quarter, it's slowed to two and a two and a half percent, and operating profit similarly, still making a good margin, but it's down to about two percent in the third quarter. Oh, the growth was two percent. Yeah, lower, so there is that inventory unwind that is kind of come through to a mm. greater extent perhaps now and I, I did see as well I think you know people look at it so closely even the month by month performance some people like to watch but yeah. the latest month was slightly better I think October that would have been rather than September but uh, you know we're really getting into the uh, very <laughs> short term uh, nature of things then you spoke about you know the logistics and the way it tries to manage the uh, uh, fulfillment of these uh, these products and deliveries but the the culture which obviously is a very ephemeral ephemeral even mm. even more ephemeral than the term quality is is the culture of a business uh but they like to make a lot of of their culture as well and, and yeah they do i mean it's difficult to know from outside um how engaged each of its twenty two thousand employees feel but it is a big point that's made in the annual results every year and they publish a a letter that they send out to all of the staff um it's not unusual in terms of uh, a merchant like this in devolving power and responsibility to local branches and making local branch managers responsible for their own P&L. I think that's just a good business trait to have in a business like this. But yeah, the ephemeral, the culture more or they, they call themselves the blue team. They, they have a, a logistics line called the blue line and et cetera, things like that. But the um, the founder um, retired years ago, but apparently still visits the business every week. And in the last shareholder's letter, they cracked a joke about how he suggested on his gravestone, he wants a short quote saying, I'd rather be at Fasanol. 
It's it's a little uh, years ago I visited uh, a company in Sweden, Klaus Olsson, which you may or may yeah. not be aware of, but a very similar background as well. It uh, developed out of out of a mail order business, mm. and just everyone with the local area ended up working on it at some point. It's a real sort of holistic attitude they've taken towards uh, staff and the business itself. Um, I haven't looked at it in in recent years, but. Uh, there, there are definitely parallels there too. There's a lot of sort of engagement with uh, employees. I, mean, I guess they're ahead of the curve in terms of that uh, whole stakeholder principle. The uh, the founder of Fastenal as well. Uh, he has written a book called The Power of Fastenal People, which um, I was going to say books by CEOs are probably ten a penny, certainly in the US. But uh, the gravestone thing does take it a step further. <laughs> to, to be fair. Um, and that book apparently is available on Amazon for one hundred and fifty pounds, which uh, wow. I think speaks to the uh, the lack of supply perhaps more than uh, high demand but uh, <laughs> but nonetheless you know clearly they they do put a lot of stock in uh, in this side of the business the yeah. to to finish though the the same question as ever one issue if you want to call it that with quality shares is you know the way we assess or the way a lot of people assess for quality can be relatively value agnostic and that does sometimes certainly in the US market as well lead to valuations which are you know not bargain basement and that mm. may be the case here as well for the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, again, uh, on a PE basis, there may be the slightly weaker earnings forecast maybe makes it look a little more expensive, but it trades off a PE of 29, um, which is pretty much exactly double RS in the UK, and obviously you have the UK-US bias there. But um, I had a look at the, the analyst consensus opinion, and maybe because more market related or maybe it's just been overbought but um more of the analysts had hold or sell ratings on it way more than buy and its target price uh, or the combined target price of analysts as a group is lower than the current share price so there's a suggestion really there that i think maybe it looks quite heavily priced yeah one two Keep an eye on, maybe wait for a better entry point because it certainly mm. is a quality business by certainly as far as we uh, can ascertain from the figures and from our analysis of the company. That does bring us to the end of today's show, though. So thank you very much to Mike, to Alex, to Julian, to Hermione, to Mark and to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe. We will see you next time on another Companies and Markets show. Mm-hmm.